Open them up to Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4. We discover that chapter 4, Paul gives us supporting information to show us how our justification uh, is by faith and faith alone, and this reality is supported with Old Testament Scripture. So a couple of weeks ago, the last time that I preached, we talked about how Abraham and David, how they were justified by their faith, not by their works, and that was from verses 1 through 8. This morning, we'll be unpacking verses 9 through 12, and we're going to realize that our justification is by faith, not by rites or rituals or any type of uh, ceremony. And so we begin with Paul's initial question that begins verse number 9, and he says, Is this blessing then on the circumcised or on the uncircumcised also? Now the blessing that he's talking about is referring back to the blessed man that he just described from verses 6 through 8. So so look back there real fast. Verse 6, just as David also speaks of the blessing of the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works, blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. And so the blessed man is the one in whom they have been justified by faith. It's the one who is counted righteous apart from works. It's the one whose sin has been forgiven and covered. It's the one who, whose sins are, are, are no longer counted against them. And so is this blessing of forgiveness available to a few people or is it available to all people? Or in Paul's words, he says it like this, is this blessing then on the circumcised or on the uncircumcised also? Now the way that the question is worded in Greek suggests the answer. And that is this blessedness is for the circumcised and the uncircumcised. This blessedness of forgiveness is available to both Jew and Gentile. Now most Jews that were in the New Testament times were thoroughly convinced that circumcision was not only a unique mark upon their body that set them apart from everybody else, identifying them as belonging, uh, as children of God, uh, but, but many of them believed that this circumcision was the means by which they became acceptable to God. So many Jews believed that salvation was based upon their obedience to God and being circumcised. And that their eternal security rested in their obedience to that ritual. Circumcision was considered to be so much a, a mark of God's favor upon them that some Jewish rabbis uh, would even go to the extreme and, and teach that no circumcised man will ever enter into hell. Such beliefs were so strong in Judaism that many of them were carried over into Christianity by Jewish converts in the early church. Circumcision and 
obedience to the Mosaic law became such an issue within the early church that there was a special council that was put together. A council made up of apostles and elders. And these council, this council got together and they met in Jerusalem. And you can read about it in Acts chapter 15. After much debate within the council, they reached a unanimous decision. And in a letter sent out to Gentile churches, they made it known that obedience to Mosaic ritual, or specifically even circumcision, was not necessary in order to receive salvation. Circumcision never saved a Jewish person, and it could never save a Gentile one. Remember back to uh, chapter 2. That's the point that Paul was trying to make. Look back at chapter 2. Just, just two verses. Look at verses 28 and 29. He says, For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter, and his praise is not from men, but from God. And I'm going to go back to chapter 4, right? So in, in, in response to this, Paul turns once again to the life of Abraham. Abraham's experience illustrates this truth. Therefore, Paul repeats the scriptural declaration that, that Abraham was declared righteous on the basis of his faith. Verse 9 continues, and he says, For we say faith was credited to Abraham as righteousness. So Abraham was counted righteous when he believed. His faith was credited for righteousness. The word credited means to, um, to reckon, to count, uh, to deposit. Uh, that word means to put to towards one's account. It, it, it means to impute unto someone else. So Abraham's faith was counted for righteousness. His faith was credited for righteousness. And so, so Paul asked whether Abraham's justification, did that occur before or after he was circumcised? Verse number 10 says, how then was it credited? While he was circumcised or in uncircumcision? So answering his own question, Paul states that it wasn't after, but rather this occurred before. He says, not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. In Greek, it literally translates not in circumcision, but in uncircumcision. So Abraham was counted righteous well before the ritual of circumcision was ever instituted. This is a, a critical point that is clearly seen in the scriptures. It's Genesis chapter 15, verse number 8, where we get the, uh, get the declaration from God. There it says, uh, he believed in the Lord. Uh, so that's Abraham. Abraham believed in the Lord, and the Lord counted it to him for righteousness. That's Genesis chapter 15, verse number 6. Now, how old Abraham was at Genesis chapter 15, verse number 6 is unknown. 
We don't know. But what do we know? Well, we know in Genesis chapter 12, when God called him out, we know that he was 75 years of age. We know in the very next chapter, in Genesis chapter 16, when Hagar bore him Ishmael, we know that he was 86 years of age. And so the story or the ritual of circumcision doesn't come into play until you get to Genesis chapter 17. And when you read it, you'll see at Genesis chapter 17, Abraham is 99 years of age. So he's declared righteous somewhere in the window between 75 years of age and 86 years of age. So Abraham was declared righteous by God at least 14 years before he was ever circumcised. Abraham was counted righteous long before he underwent some ritual. His righteousness, his being acceptable to God, did not depend upon a ritual. It was credited to him as a result of faith. Abraham believed. God didn't count Abraham righteous because of a ritual. He didn't count him righteous because of a ceremony. He didn't count him righteous because of a a good deed or a good work that he performed. Abraham wasn't counted righteous because he he led a religious or, or moral life. No, God accepted Abraham and counted him righteous because he believed. He believed the promise of God. In fact, like wrap your mind around this one, right? When Abraham was counted as righteous, it was before his circumcision. So it's so a little truth nugget for you. When, when Abraham was counted righteous, he was an uncircumcised Gentile. Jews weren't even recognized at that point. So he was counted righteous as an uncircumcised Gentile. So the so natural question to, to ask would be, so, so why circumcision? Why did God make circumcision a, a binding law with Abraham's descendants? Well, we'll see that in verse number 11. It says, and he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of faith, which he had while uncircumcised, so that he might be the father of all who believed without being circumcised, that righteousness might be credited to them. Abraham received circumcision as a sign or a symbol. Circumcision was not the way into God's presence. Circumcision was not what made Abraham acceptable to God. Circumcision did not confer righteousness upon Abraham. No, it only confirmed that he was righteous. Circumcision bore the testimony of his righteousness. So, So circumcision was the physical mark of identifying a child of God. And even under the new covenant, when when Paul is addressing this, Paul has no objection to an individual being circumcised as long as they recognize the sign to which that circumcision is to point. In fact, you can see it in the life of Timothy. 
Acts chapter 16. Uh, Timothy was a half Jew. Uh, he, Timothy had a Greek father and a Jewish mother. And, and so in Acts chapter 16, you'll see where Paul actually circumcised Timothy. And he did so not to make Timothy acceptable unto God. No, Timothy underwent this circumcision so that he might have a greater opportunity to witness among the Jewish people in his own hometown. So looking at verse number 11, you'll see that circumcision was both a sign and a seal. It's a sign and a seal. Although uh, they convey similar ideas, you got to realize that a sign points to something Whereas the seal guarantees something. And so uh, when an official seal was stamped on a letter or a decree, then that seal was the authenticity was being guaranteed through that seal. That, that seal meant this was the real deal. This can be trusted. And so it's in the sense that circumcision was the reminder, it was a reminder of the guarantee that all of God's covenant promises would be fulfilled. Now today, believers, we're sealed, but we're sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit. That's how we're sealed. That's our guarantee. In fact, scriptures testify to this. Ephesians chapter 1 tells us in verses 13 and 14, In him, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who was given as a pledge of our inheritance, with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of his glory. As believers, we have the seal of the Holy Spirit in our lives, but we also have experienced a spiritual circumcision of the heart. That's why in Galatians chapter 2, it says, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, and in him you have been made complete. And he is the head over all rule and authority. And then verse 11, and in him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. So this spiritual circumcision of the heart is not something that we should overlook. It's not something that is minor. This is extremely significant in the lives of believers. Greater than any minor physical operation that one might have, we have had a major operation of the putting off of our old nature through the death and resurrection of our Lord. 
And that spiritual circumcision is what changes our lives. It changes our motives. It changes our desires because we're no longer operating under that old sinful nature. We have the seal of the Holy Spirit and that working of the Holy Spirit in our lives that changes who we are and what we desire to do. So today... This, the sign of this spiritual reality. We already talked about the seal, and the seal is that of the Holy Spirit. But today, the sign of this spiritual reality is seen in baptism. And how beautiful that we got to witness that this morning. As they were baptized, make you know that their baptism did not save them. It's a reality of what's already happened and transpired in their lives. Baptism did not make them a believer. It revealed unto the world the fact that they believe. Baptism is like a wedding ring. It is an outward symbol of the commitment that we make with our hearts for life, pledging ourselves unto someone else. So that's what we got to behold even today. And in a similar way that baptism symbolizes the death and resurrection uh, with Jesus, there's also uh, communion that the church partakes of. And communion symbolizes his redemptive act on our behalf. And we're to remember and to reflect upon that until he returns. And so neither baptism nor communion have any power in and of themselves. They don't. But both baptism and communion are outward demonstrations or or reminders of the salvation that can be found in and through Jesus Christ. And so for the believer, communion is a collective or a corporate sign of our relationship with Jesus Whereas baptism is the individual sign of that relationship. Side note, contrary to what many churches might teach today, infant baptism does not correspond to the circumcision of Jewish male infants. Even if it did, infant baptism would no more secure one's salvation than circumcision would. In fact, those that consider infant baptism as the new equivalent to circumcision, they should take note that that comparison actually undermines rather than supports the false doctrine of baptismal regeneration. So since circumcision by itself was powerless to alter one's relationship with God, the same would be true of baptism. Baptism isn't what makes us acceptable to God. Baptism is a sign revealing unto others the fact that we believe. We believe. There's our faith that credits is credited as righteousness. Baptism is of utmost importance into the heart and life of believers. It's the first act of obedience. To be 
baptized, to submit and surrender your lives unto God. And at that point, you make that decision known and you reveal it, you proclaim it to the church and to the world, and you do that through baptism. And yet, even today, so many people wrestle with the idea, well, should I be baptized? I was baptized as a kid, but, uh, you know, I just don't know. Do I get baptized all over again? Well, my answer to that dilemma is, when did you believe? When, when, when was righteousness credited to you based upon faith? And, and, and if you believed as a child and were baptized, and you've struggled with returning back to sin and walking in disobedience, well, baptism is what you need in order to be right. You need to confess your sins, repent, and, 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 and walk anew with, with, with God. And so many times people want to go back to baptism as another starting point. That's not the way it works. You, you get baptized once. Once. Once as that public declaration The other declaration that we might need to consider is the confessing of our sins, repenting of our sins, and walking fresh in our walk with our Savior. And so instead of complaining because Abraham isn't judged by the the law or isn't judged by circumcision, the Jewish people should have been rejoicing in the fact that salvation is available to everyone. That, that in fact, that they should be rejoicing in the reality that Abraham has not only a physical family, he has a spiritual one as well. Paul continues in verse number 11. He says, And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of faith, which he had while uncircumcised, so that he might be the father of all who believe without being circumcised, the righteousness might be credited to them. Then verse 12, and the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, but who also follow in the steps of faith of our father Abraham, which he had while uncircumcised. So there's no question that Abraham is the, the father or the founder of the Jewish nation. Being able to claim him as one's ancestor is and was a great privilege. I mean, that's, that's, that's beautiful. But here, the, the lineage that Paul is addressing is not a physical one. It's a spiritual one. Here, Paul is speaking of Abraham's spiritual fatherhood. Elsewhere in Scripture, in places like Galatians chapter 3, he writes in verse 6 and 7, Even so, Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Therefore, be sure that it is those who are of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Then later in the chapter, he writes in verse number 26, For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promise. 
Man, Abraham is the father of all who believe. Every believer, every Christian has the privilege of calling Abraham our father. Not only do we have the privilege of of calling him our father, but we also get to inherit the salvation that was promised through him. And so Jews have the, the privilege of being a descendant of Abraham, I mean, they have the the privilege of being called children of Abraham, potentially in two senses, right? In the first sense, uh, they're all descendants from him physically. So what a great privilege. What a a unique honor to have that connection and that relationship. But may you know, this was involuntary. He had no control over that. In, In fact, There's no promise of eternal salvation attached to being a physical descendant of Abraham. But like the rest of us, the Jewish people have the potential that they might choose to follow in the footsteps of faith of Abraham. By responding to God in faith, Both the circumcised and uncircumcised people are literally keeping in the step of Abraham's footstep of faith. So the faith that Jews and Gentiles should imitate is the faith that Abraham had before he was circumcised. That he demonstrated from Genesis 12 to Genesis 15. Abraham believed that's, I mean, it seems so simple, but I realize it cost everything. He believed, and God credited that belief as righteousness. And we talked about this before, how salvific belief is something that affects and changes who we are. It's not enough just to say, I believe in our head, without following that belief with a commitment to love, honor, and serve God wholly and completely. Doesn't mean that we're going to walk in perfect obedience. No. But it does mean that we've had a circumcision of the heart and that old nature has been removed. We have the seal of the Holy Spirit. We're clothed in Christ. Therefore, we ought to act and behave a lot different than we did prior to that salvation that we've experienced. Abraham believed. It was credited to him as righteousness. How did Abraham's belief affect how he lived and what he did? We talked about it at the beginning. Did he have a perfect obedience? No. Were there times that he completely blew it? Absolutely. But there's a lot that we can look at from his life and be challenged with in our own life. For instance, think about Genesis chapter 12, where it all kind of begins. Genesis chapter 12, with no guarantee other than the word of God, Abraham leaves his business, his homeland, his friends, the majority of his relatives. He leaves because he believes. He believes. I mean, just think about that. Just, just that reality. Let me ask you, do you trust God with your future? Are you willing to do whatever he commands? Are you willing to go wherever he sends? I mean, in making decisions for your life, 
do you consider the will of God in making those decisions? Or do you have a tendency to pick and choose what it is that you want to do, and then after you've made that choice, you turn to God asking him to bless the decision that you made without ever going to him for counsel? Abraham believed. Genesis chapter 15. Abraham believed the promise of the son. He believed. Which begs the question, do you believe that God will do everything that he's promised to do? And if you say you do, then how does your life match that belief? Does that belief affect who you are and what you do? Also, in Genesis chapter 15, Abraham receives the promised land by faith. But not only did he, he, he receive the promise of the promised land, but God warned him that the fulfillment of this promise would, would not occur until many generations later. Which we should consider, how have we demonstrated our continued trust in God during those times in our lives when we've had to wait on him? Any impatient believers here? Have you demonstrated that faith in the waiting periods and seasons of life? Genesis chapter 17. At God's command, Abraham circumcised every single male in his household. Let me ask you, how have you acted in simple obedience to God? What has he called you to do? Genesis chapter 20. Powerful example in Genesis chapter 20. Abraham admits to his wrongdoing. Not only does he admit to his wrongdoing, he takes the actions and the steps necessary to set things right. So if you want to walk in the footsteps of faith like Abraham, then, then consider when you sin, do you have a tendency to cover it up? To try to block it out? Or are you willing to admit your fault? And if you're willing to admit your fault, which is the proper response, right? Are you willing to follow that up and and to, with that apology, offer any type of restitution that would be necessary in order to set things right? In Genesis chapter 22 powerful example when, when Abraham was preparing to sacrifice his son Isaac. Just think about that as an example. And how have you demonstrated in your own life that nothing or no one will come in between your relationship with our Heavenly Father? Is He supreme in your life? Is the greatest relationship you have being focused and devoted unto God? If not, we have a problem. If he doesn't have all of us, then we're giving our loyalty and our attention to things in competition with God. And that's not healthy. Not right. Christ gave himself wholly and completely on our behalf. The only appropriate response to make in response to what Jesus has done for us 
is to submit and surrender our lives unto him and to walk in faithful obedience to his word and to his will. My fear is we now live in a, in a culture or in a time where there's just not that much emphasis placed upon the obedience unto God. And as though churches, I'll speak to the Western church, it's that the Western church has gotten soft over the years. Distracted. Maybe even caught up in matters that really we shouldn't even be involved in. What do we need to be about doing? Proclaim the gospel. Witnessing to the lost. Serving God and serving one another with all that we have and all that we are. This past week, I was even reading some, uh, some statistics that have just been released. Maybe you've seen it. We have statistics. Uh, the most current is in respect to 2019. In 2019, the Protestant churches in America, we actually had more churches close in 2019 than we did have new church starts for that year. More churches closed than we had church starts. In 2019, I can only imagine what statistics will reveal about 2020. But in 2019, think about it. 4,500 churches, Protestant churches across the nation closed. 4,500. That's a big number. 375 a month. 87 churches every single week, on average, in 2019, closed their doors. I mean, that's probably a reflection of where we are as a nation. The, the, the awful decisions that are being made and directions that are, 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 are being taken as a nation. But as a church, oh, come on. As a church, we should be resolved that we are going to have a firm foundation upon the word of God and we're not going to veer from it no matter what culture says, no matter what the pushback of others would dictate that we are good to stand upon the word of God and we will not back down, let up, or shut up until we've proclaimed it to everyone. And as we go through Romans 4, it's so important for us to see the point that Paul's trying to make. We're declared righteous, justified, on the basis of our faith, by believing. It's not by works. It's not by rites or ceremonies. And it's not by the law. We'll talk about that next week. And so everything that God had given to his people, we'll talk about the law, circumcision, sacrifices, feasts, festivals, all those things were given to better inform people in their faith. It was given to inform. It didn't remove the need to personally respond in faith. That's, that's the call. Just as Abraham believed, so must we. And so I'll ask you, do you believe. You believe. 
Do you believe that Jesus Christ has accomplished all that is necessary for the salvation of your soul? And do you submit and surrender your life to him as Lord? Do you believe? And if you believe, I recognize it doesn't mean you're walking in perfect obedience. You're messing up. We all do. Are you willing to take responsibility in that? To confess that? Repent from it? And to choose a better way. In just a moment, we're going to have our time of response. And in this time, we'll do several things almost simultaneously. We'll have a time where we receive our tithes and our offerings. But we also have a time to reflect upon what the Word of God just told us. May you know that staff and I will be down here. We'd love to pray with you. The altar is open and available We're going to worship a little bit longer through some songs. And in this time, if there's something that we can do to help you, to pray with you or for you, that is what we'd love to do. But as our ushers are getting ready right now, I'm going to turn over to Rodney. Where's Rodney? Rodney, come on up here. Rodney is going to lead us in our offertory prayer. We are here at the front. We'd love to talk and pray with you if we can. Rodney.